The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And that's a newsletter that really dates back to uh, 1981, to be exact, when I first started writing my letter. Worked as a uh, banker for a number of years as a credit analyst, a lending a, uh, a lending officer, and then did a bit of investment banking as well before I devoted full-time in 1997 to write my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Chen is not taking new subscribers now, but if you would like to sign up in just a, another week or so, we will be opening up uh, the opportunity for new subscribers to come in to his excellent newsletter. You do need to put your name on a waiting list at miningstocks.com. Uh, check out Chen Lin uh, through miningstocks.com. Put your name on a, on a waiting list at that, uh, at that address. Uh, I would also like to remind you uh, that the best website to uh, catch up with everything that I do is jtaylormedia.com jtaylormedia.com and uh, you can also follow me on Twitter under the handle jtaylormedia I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable for the first hour of today's show our sponsors are Brazil Resources, Eurasian Minerals Dynacor Gold Mines Golden Arrow Resources Corporation Miranda Gold, Paramount Gold and Silver uh, Corp Precipitate Gold and Renaissance Gold and before I, well, let me also just thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Uh, before we get into today's program, I would like to just uh, say that uh, with respect to our sponsors, uh, next week we will be having Dynacor, um, the CEO, Jean Martineau from Dynacor, will be coming on to talk to us. And Dynacor this coming week uh, will be releasing their earnings 
and I'm expecting some pretty good numbers from what I'm hearing. Uh, the stock is, uh, as like so many others, is really down right now. Uh, in fact, I think to the point where its uh, price-to-earnings ratio is going to look very, very attractive uh, if I'm not uh, wrong about the uh, what I'm expecting in terms of earnings. But this is a company with very good growth prospects. In this environment, I much prefer companies that can grow organically that uh, are in a position uh, not to have to rely on outside equity but can use their earnings from their current production to expand and grow, and that certainly seems to be the position that Dynacor is in. And the other thing that I like about Dynacor and some other companies that uh, that I follow uh, is that they tend to under-promise and over-deliver. So I'd rather, much rather have companies uh, say that they're going to, you know, when they tell me, project their earnings and cash flows, that they at least hit those numbers, and and so often with Dynacor, they've been doing better than what they uh, what they guided uh, to the uh, investors towards. Well, all of our um, sponsors, as I say, most of them are, are down in price right now. This is the industry as a whole. It's a very difficult. A very difficult uh, environment, to say the least. But these are the times when profits are made. It's when to buy them. And having the courage to buy shares when they are depressed, it's not easy. Um, it's, you know, we, I guess everybody can really identify with that right now. Another company that I like very much, and they are going to become a sponsor in the near term, is Sandgold. I've liked this one before. They've been a sponsor before. The share price has drifted lower. It's been very disappointing, but they've made some very good progress. Uh, in turning their mining prospects around, along, around I should say, uh, the uh, Rice Lake Gold Mine in Manitoba is doing, uh, is really seeming to come along very nicely. Um, now, with respect to today's show, uh, I've titled it "Preparing for a Tectonic." geopolitical and economic shift and Chris Martinson is going to be with us at 3.30 and then Eric Coffin uh, at about 4 o'clock uh, for the first time these two gentlemen will be appearing on this show uh, and Bob Hoyle, Hoy will uh, be with us in just a few minutes after the first commercial break he's scheduled to come here to be with us at about 3.15 uh, Chris Martinson will talk about the, un, the, un, uh, the unsustainable future of our economy uh, energy and environment and how we should prepare our lives to deal with the adversities we most certainly will face in the future. Uh, and as I said at about 4 o'clock, Eric Coffin will be coming on with us to share his appraisal of the current depressed state of the small cap mining sector and how you should uh, uh, try to, uh, or how you should play it. Now, Eric uh, has a solid technical understanding of exploration and mining industries uh, and mining economics, uh, not to mention various other dynamics that drive small cap markets uh, in the mining sector. Uh, and so I think you're not going to want to miss what Eric has to say. I'm expecting that he will have uh, some good investment ideas to pass along to us as well, and certainly some of the companies that he follows, I follow on my newsletter, uh, and at least one of those is a sponsor to the show, so we'll ask him about that one as well. Um, and uh, later in the day, I'm uh, in the last part of today's show. I'm hoping to pass along some of Jim Sinclair's comments. Uh, Jim Sinclair is a very excellent uh, analyst of the uh, the gold markets, has been doing it all his adult life uh, practically, and I remember the last time uh, we were in a bear market, or the, a bull market in gold, I should say, in the 1970s, I can remember listening to Jim Sinclair uh, and very accurately predict uh, what was to come in the gold share 
uh, in the gold markets and in the gold share markets as well. But he did it extremely well uh, getting out of that bull market just at about the peak and uh, doing extremely well as an investor and also advising other people. And uh, Jim is providing a lot of very valuable information, I believe, to investors uh, with respect to the current uh, environment, the current gold sh- gold uh, environment. And so I think he- he's very much worth listening to. I'm hoping to get him on this show sometime in the near future, but in any event, towards the end of today's show, time permitting, I expect to have some comments on uh, on what Jim Sinclair had to say to a very large uh, audience in New York City last week um, uh, concerning the gold markets. Um, before we get to Chris Martinson, uh, as I say, I will be talking to Bob Hoy in a few minutes uh, for an update as to where he sees the gold markets as well as the major markets. Bob called me last week to tell me that he thinks his measure of the real price of gold, uh, he uses uh, a proprietary basket of commodities to measure the, the price of gold against. And he was telling me last week that he believes that uh, that, that uh, that measure of the real price of gold is suggesting some major problems ahead for the financial markets and that also uh, it was suggesting that we could be near a, a very significant breakout for the uh, for the gold price um, in the very near future. Uh, I think we have a couple of minutes here yet before Bob Hoy comes on, so I'd just uh, like to run over some of the uh, some of the headlines in today's Financial Times. It's the one newspaper that I read almost every day, the Financial Times, and um, uh, one of them, a couple of them, have to do with energy. And I bring these up in part, large part, because a great deal of what uh, Mr. Dr. Martinson is going to talk to us about has to do with energy and the sustainability. Uh, in the future for the United States and the Western world to continue living as we are. Uh, Martinson clearly thinks uh, we're going to be challenged in that regard, uh, and I think there's some good reasons to believe he's right. We'll certainly explore those ideas, but there are two articles uh, in today's Financial Times that I thought are worth bringing out uh, in light of uh, this energy issue. Certainly, uh, energy is the, is the key to living the kind of lives that we are living uh, the way we're living them today anyway. But the one article was titled Shale Gas Export Fears, and it had to do with American manufacturing lobbyists really trying to keep Obama from allowing our natural gas to be exported. You know, there's a huge difference between natural gas prices in North America and what they are paying in China. For example, I think something like maybe $15 to 2 or $3 in the U.S. and in Canada. So the prospects of... Uh, of exporting natural gas uh, to China is what, of course, makes a lot of sense from an economic point of view. Uh, but these people, uh, the lobbyists in the United States, want to see us continue to have a manufacturing advantage of low-cost uh, energy. So they are trying to keep the president from uh, from going forward with ex- or to block exports of natural gas overseas. Well, is that really what we should be doing? Uh, well, as a free market advocate, it's certainly not what I would suggest uh, is the best thing to do. Is it right to ask the natural gas industry to, in effect, subsidize uh, to, in effect, subsidize the um, uh, the manufacturing base in the United States? Uh, I don't think so, as a free market advocate. Uh, then I see another hard article in today's Financial Times has to do with the United, with the United Kingdom. Uh, they're going to commit 20 million pounds uh, to research and development of the nuclear power industry with a, uh, I, I guess, a notion and an idea that they would like to... Um, 
you know, go back and, and increase their competitiveness uh, with nuclear power. I would certainly want to talk to Dr. Martinson about his views on nuclear power uh, as, as well um, and, and see what he has to say about that. I mean, clearly, uh, Dr. Martinson believes that the path we are on is not sustainable. He certainly is critical of the financial industry uh, and uh, the creation of money out of thin air and all the problems that that's caused, the exponential growth of money and demand and debt. Uh, and, of course, um, uh, these are all issues that we, that we will talk to Dr. Martinson about. Uh, some other headlines in today's uh, Financial Times talked about um, – Investor sentiments that are shifting. Uh, apparently, the small investors are now becoming much more interested in uh, in the markets again, uh, and we saw that this year at the start in the United States, where uh, for the first time in a, in a few years, I believe the um, the mutual fund industry started seeing some big inflows into uh, the equities markets. Well, is this a sign that perhaps uh, this bull market in equities is long in the tooth? If the average guys are getting back in, uh, is it time to start? thinking uh, maybe uh, we're, we're seeing a peak in the equity markets and we're certainly seeing the possibilities of a triple top in the major industries in the, in the U.S. And if, uh, if so, can we get through those, uh, those tops? Can we get on to something uh, bigger? Uh, are we in the early stages of a new bull market or are we nearing a, a, a major decline in equity prices? Certainly our next guest, Bob Hoy, will uh, probably have something to say. We'll ask him anyway what he believes about general equity markets and um, also, uh, of course, more significantly, what Bob has to say about about gold and what his real price of gold is telling uh, is telling us uh, right now. Um, I think what we'll do is go to break now because I see that Bob Hoy is with us. So uh, I'm going to ask our engineer to uh, to take us to break, and when we come back, uh, we'll be back to talk to uh, to Bob Hoy uh, to get his latest uh, views on the equity markets. Uh, and most importantly, the precious metals markets. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Bob Hoy. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com.
Precipitate Gold is focused on exploring and developing its gold properties in the Dominican Republic in Mexico. Precipitate's management team has been responsible for numerous takeovers, with valuations exceeding $280 million. With a successful team and a growing portfolio of quality gold assets, including an attractive concession adjacent to GoldQuest's holdings in the Dominican Republic, the company is well positioned for growth in 2013. For more information, please visit www.precipitategold.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again guest several times to read his bio right now. It is on the Voice America business on my website there, uh, but we don't have only uh, 12 minutes or so with Bob, so I want to get on to his rights and what he tells his subscribers about on a regular basis. Well, welcome, Bob. It's really good. Yeah, good to be with you, Jay. I'm just... Uh you're breaking up a little on my side here. I hope you can hear me. I'm hearing you perfectly well, um, and I hope you can hear me, but mostly it's more important that you and my listeners hear you. I'll just start off with the fact that we have been in a period of huge asset inflation and tangible assets, which everybody, including policymakers, understand, and uh, financial assets, which, uh, of course, are stocks and more recently uh, junk bonds and that sort of stuff, but this is uh, when the big excitement blew out in 2007. That was number six in a series of great financial bubbles that began in uh, with the South Sea bubble in 1720, and they are remarkably similar. And during the uh, the great bubbles, uh, you get good action in base metal prices and stuff like that, houses, real estate. And then it all blows out. But the main thing is that if you gold is is also consistent in it. It doesn't stay the same price all the time, but it's consistent. And what we've did is taken the price of gold and divided it by the consumer price index for a deflator. And then when the CPI became uh, unreliable, we then went to a commodities index, uh, which has been very good. So in a great financial mania, uh, real things like um Mining stocks do well, the base metal miners, and then the gold stocks don't do so well. They're okay, but not so well. But where they come into their own is in the post-bubble contraction. And even in economic terms, Jay, we're getting this, because the uh, the, the feature of a, of a post-bubble contraction is uh, the um, severe recessions and weak recoveries. And even the establishment called it the worst recession since the 1930s. And it's also been the weakest recovery. Now, there's some things that are suggesting in us that this recovery is getting a little long in the tooth. And, uh, we can judge that with our, our, the action that's going on. Our, 
gold divided by commodities index, it was very good in 2007. It bottomed out in May of 2007, and that's when the credit markets uh, returned. So you had the turn up in real price of gold as the credit markets turned down. And then that went all the way through the crash until February of 2009 uh, when it had reached up to 500. And then it turned down uh, three weeks before the panic ended on March the 10th of 2009. So since then, you've been in a business expansion. And this is a time when it's not too good for gold the gold mining business, because if you've got a high price of crude oil, for example, that represents energy costs, and that bites into the profits of gold miners. So where it's been really exciting here uh, is uh, after the sell signal we got for gold shares in September, just last September, and we got the signal on that one from watching the action in the silver-gold ratio, and uh, any bull market for gold and silver, silver outperforms. So the RSI got up to 84 on that one, which we recognize as dangerous territory. So this brings us up to fairly recent, whereby you have uh, the uh, gold divided by commodities index came down. So gold fell relative to most commodities as the party brewed up there. And it fell relative to uh, the S&P or the gold stocks relative to S&P. So... I think what's happened here with the two big highs in gold sector, and the first one in April of 11, and then this other one in September 12, that ended oh a decade long of you know benevolent, roughly benevolent times in the in the in the mining market, and now I think this is the opposite. So you have gold divided by commodities, very low, and then also recently some of those even the momentum on some of these ratios got pretty bad. And then beginning uh, three weeks ago, our gold divided by commodities index turned up, checked back, and then just recently here it's, it's breaking to new highs, which to us then is, a, is very constructive for the gold sector. But it's also a signal on all the speculation that's gone on in the, in the basic stock markets as well as in low-grade bonds. So we're looking for, this is a big rounded top in the stock market, if you want to look at that. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's an important, very important low for the gold stocks. All right, Bob, can you put this gold to commodities uh, in some sort of perspective? Uh, give us some numbers, if you would, what the highs and the lows might be, because this is a very important aspect of your work, this gold yeah. to commodity price, the real price of gold, if you will. Tell us where it's at now. What was its low? What was its high? Yeah. Okay, so we're we're at uh, uh, about 350 now. Mm-hmm. The high in uh, in the, with the crash in in May or in yeah May two, uh, 2009 was uh, was at uh, 500 over 500. But if you go back to the bubble year 2007, that was as low as 143. So on the crash, it, it, it really soared from 143 to over 500. And then it came down to actual low a year ago. Uh, yeah, and the 11 was in the order of 300. Then last September, it was up at 500. And now we're down here forming a nice base at the 350 level. So 
Um, the important thing, too, Jay, is, is that the real price of gold has gone up in previous post-bubble contractions. And this is what enhances the uh, profitability for the gold mining side. Uh, they're getting better price for their gold relative to the cost of mining it. That also uh, uh, is important to gold explorers, too, because you calculate an ore body uh, and your uh, the value is increasing. Uh, that improves all the numbers. So, And then it's basically due to huge investment demand for gold because in a post-bubble contraction, the serious money in the time when a storm's coming will go to the most liquid items, and that would be treasury bills in the U.S. dollar. It's still the senior currency, and it's also to gold. So this is where you're getting this opposite came in. It's not just now gold moving opposite to commodities, but moving opposite to the big stock market because uh, in early November, gold shares were still quite high and the uh, S&P was making a low. And then, as we all know very painfully over the last two months, the uh, S&P stocks and junk bonds have gone to very good highs mm-hmm. with good momentum and outstanding sentiment. Whereas the gold sector has uh, taken the worst of the brunt. It's been very seriously worked over. The juniors are, well, it's, it's really bad. Yes. Somebody asked this a while ago, is this one of the worst? And the response was, it depends upon whether you personally are solvent or insolvent. But <laughs> it's a pretty bad market for the gold sector. And uh, we've seen these before. And they come and they go. But uh, the outlook is really very good. It may be a little lumpy over the next four or five weeks getting there. And then if we go into um, another wave of, of disappearing liquidity and forced selling on, on junk bonds and on equities, you could have some setback days for the gold stocks. So our advice on the gold sector would be or has been for the last five weeks to be accumulating and then the last two weeks we've been saying actually to buy on 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 weekdays on weekdays. So, and and uh, as we always live in hope, hopefully it all works out, Jay. Yes. Well, yeah, like you say, we've been here before, Bob. Those of us that have around had many many trips around the sun. We've seen quite a few of these cycles, and but they all hurt a bit unless you are cash rich and and uh, you know if you are following your advice because you use this gold to commodities at some point you're saying take some money off the table start to cash up and get ready for another cycle buy something uh, now you provide that information on a regular basis so you not only track the uh, not only track the precious metals markets, but you also look at at the other markets, the the equity markets and the the uh, the debt markets as well. I want to ask you though to put this in perspective where we are now, because you've talked about this being the sixth major credit contraction or credit deleveraging episode in the last three hundred years. I mean, this is a big this is a big deal, isn't it? And how far are we post Lehman Brothers? I mean, how much further do we have? in this deleveraging process before this major cycle, this major increase in the real price of gold is over with, Bob. How much further do we have to go? How f- are we in the third inning, the sixth inning, or what inning of this bo- nine-inning ball game are we? Putting it, Jay, uh, the, uh, in previous ones, the, uh, after, whether it was the South Sea bubble in 1720 or the huge monster bubble in 1825, and then, of course, everybody's familiar with 1929, 
But each of the post-bubble contractions lasted for around 20 years. Hmm. The other thing that prevailed was the three- to four-year business cycle. And as we said, out of the crash, one would expect a three- or four-year business cycle while we're there. And it could be getting long in the tooth and ready to roll over. So So then on each of the recessions, the gold sector does well. And then uh, the stocks will perform well. So um, in 19, uh, following 1929, in the er, 1930s, you could have bought home stake for around $9 a share. And by the time we got to the end of 1933, which was before Roosevelt started fiddling around with gold and the dollar, so the price was still $20.67 an ounce, the stock was up something like 130%. percent mm. And uh, But their earnings were up 130% because the real price of gold was going up. And then in 1933, that weirdo Roosevelt got on the idea of confiscating the gold and then, uh, then raising the price. And all he did was enhance what Mother Nature was doing anyways, which is to raise the real price of gold. So then ultimately, Homestead got up over $65 a share and... On your nine-dollar purchase, that looks good, Jay. But keep in mind that they, they paid out big dividends there, four fifty a share dividends through the nineteen thirties on a nine-dollar purchase. Especially in in light of the fact that the Dow lost almost ninety percent at one point there, uh, it looked awfully good, didn't it? It was a savior oh. portfolios that had home stake in it. Yeah, the gold sector was very good, and the junior side eventually just flew, and there was all kinds of deals being done major discoveries, addition to reserves, and the main thing was that Mother Nature needed the gold. Because uh, the credit contraction is that. The, the normal instruments of credit contract, and the invented, the, the new kind of instruments, the crazy ones, they disappear. So the banking system has a vacuum, and Mother Nature raises the real price of gold, and despite all the Keynesians out there, that gold in production will get into the banking system and then it starts to provide the, a, a true liquidity to the world's banking system. And the amazing thing is that it's, in all five previous examples, uh, the, the good times for gold prevailed for about 20 years. And that was also bad time, not so good times for business and offside bankers and speculators on the wrong side. But I don't want to talk about say that gold shares are a long-term investment. It's a long-term trend, but you got to trade the swings even on an intermediate basis. Oh, tell me about it. It's very painful sitting through these things in the downdraft. No, no doubt about it. So, what I just to sum up here because we are out of time, Bob. I hear what you're saying is that we are in the midst of one of these long cycles. If when did this 15 to 20 years? Uh, bull market for gold start then in the real price of gold was that with the Lehman Brothers decline yep yep that was the start May of 2007 was the low on our calculation of the real price and so, uh, so it should improve generally for uh, well you you do the do you do the arithmetic for around 20 years 2020 yeah <laughs> okay 
And then well, when I you get there, you got twenty twenty vision, haven't you? Peak. I, don't, I don't know. I guess we can hope, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's a ways away yet. And you and I have, as I just said, we have had many trips around the sun. Um, I don't know for sure if we want to be around in those days, given all that our next guest is going to talk to us about, uh, Dr. Martinson, uh, Chris Martinson. Uh, but uh, in any event, Bob, thank you very much for helping put this in perspective. It's a difficult time. Smart investors are able a lot of times to uh, to pick these, you know, to know when to buy. And, uh, you know, you're certainly one of those. Bob, I want to thank you very much for uh, for coming along and sharing your thoughts with us once again. Jay, good to be with you. Thanks a lot. Okay, take care, Bob. We'll, uh, we'll be talking to you again sometime soon. Folks, we do have to go to break. And when we come back, I'm going to be with uh, Dr. Chris Martinson. He'll talk to us about his book, The Crash Course, and other topics related to that that are more current. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Martinson. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Amir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine, operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Paramount Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico. Backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet, an experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZG News. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Dr. Chris Martinson. Dr. Martinson holds a Ph.D. in pathology from Duke University and an MBA from Cornell. He is an economic researcher and futurist who speaks to audiences around the world on the Crash Course, which is the name of a book he wrote uh, just a, a couple of years back. Um, and we want to talk to him about that for sure. Uh, the main issue, the main topic of conversation today. Uh, Chris also runs ChrisMartinson.com. That's a popular website on the global economy. And uh, he began his career as a scientist, applying his degree in pathology. He uh, became vice president of a large Fortune 300 international company, and uh, believed he had achieved the American dream living with his family in a large waterfront home in Connecticut. Sure sounds good to me. He was uh, jolted, however, out of that complacency by the bear market of 2001 and used his background in finance to investigate the workings of our monetary system. What he discovered changed his life. Today, Chris lives with wife Becca and their three kids in rural Massachusetts where they enjoy a more resilient and independent lifestyle. Uh, with fewer things, better relationships with their neighbors, and a higher quality of life. Well, this is a most unusual story to be sure, so I'm really pleased to have with me Chris Martinson to this show for the first time. Welcome, Chris, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Jay, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm just hoping and looking at your book that you can help us, uh, our show, live up to its name. Um, so... You um, can you talk a bit about what stimulated a change? What I mean, all of us went through these traumatic events. Those of us that have been around, we you know the the bubble burst in two thousand, the tech bubble, and then of course the housing bubble more recently. Uh, and yet, most people continue to do the same things. I mean, we, the policymakers haven't changed, and I I argue that in fact the policies uh, that have that that we've seen now are not a lot different than what they were in the 1930s, only more so. They're more just just more intense policy, same policies. Uh, we don't seem to learn from the past, but what was it that really, what, what accounted for your epiphany? Well, I, I wish I could tell you it came all at once with, with bright angels and, and some nice music. It took a while, and it started with me investigating the economy after my portfolio got shredded back there in 2000, 2001, and the explanations of my broker were starting to ring hollow, and, and uh, you know, one thing led to another, and, and uh, the thing that really started me uh, down this path was learning how money was made. You know, so, Jay, look, I've been through, went through high school and college and then got a Ph.D. and then went and got an MBA, spent 10 years in corporate America. How did I not learn something as simple and as profoundly important as how money is made? That is a really good level. question. That, that is a really good question. Do you have an answer for it? Yeah. We don't teach it on purpose because uh, it's not hard. Uh, you know, in my crash course online video series, I've had sixth graders take that and show it to their class, and they get it. And, of course, they had the same reaction I did, which is, what? You're kidding me. That can't be yeah. how we do it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So why don't we teach it? Well, I think it's, it's, it's rather incendiary you know, information, because for you and I and everybody else listening to this, you, money is very tangible. It's very real. If you have it, your life is, is much better than if you don't have it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, you know, the truth is we manufacture it out of thin air. And once I discovered the nature of that process, and then my science background led me to the conclusion that not only when you, when you have a debt-based money system, it has a feature. And not to say whether it's good or bad, but it's important to know what that feature is. 
and that is that it has to continue to grow exponentially in order to be happy. Mm. And that's not, you know, exponentially sounds big and scary, but it's not. Anything that's growing by some percentage per year is growing exponentially. So that could be the economy at 3%. But debts, uh, at the time I was investigating this in 2001 and two, had been compounding at a rate of around 7% per year for decades. Mm-hmm. And money had been compounding at roughly the same rate. And I looked at that and I said, well, if money is a claim on real stuff and debt is a claim on money, well, there's a lot of claims being laid on the future. Let's take a peek at the future. Mm-hmm. And that's where the story got very interesting because in order to believe that our money, credit, and debt system has a long and prosperous and sustainable future, you have to believe in one thing, and that is that we can pull infinitely more stuff out of the world on a going-forward basis. And this is where my science background came in. There's uh, just uh, so much evidence that we are running into actual limits. You can read about mm-hmm. bluefin tuna being run out. The oceans have been scraped clean. That, you know, yes, we found lots of shale oil, but we did that after oil breached the $90 a barrel mark, and, and mm-hmm. it was worth going after these relative dregs. Uh, you can find out that our soils are no longer as abundant as they used to be. If you live anywhere in the Ogallala reserv- Aquifer, you understand that that's a depleting resource and recharges at rates that don't um, really apply to, you know, current economic thinking. And, and so just on and on. And so this story developed, and I said, oh, my gosh, we can't just look at economic policy in a vacuum anymore. We have to understand energy. We have to understand the environment. The environment both is a source of things and is a place we put our wastes into. If you've seen the pollution pictures from Beijing, it's pretty obvious that you can hit limits there, too. Mm-hmm. And, and so once I put this whole story together, I said, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know when, but I can tell you this. Our past way of life is unsustainable, and Herb Stein, anything that can't go on forever won't. So I just yes. knew there was changes coming. I didn't quite know the nature of them, but you know, I got, to, I got pretty heavily into gold back in 2002 and three because my conclusion was we're just going to keep printing money, and so the claims on real things are just going to expand exponentially, but that because energy was going to become more expensive, real stuff was going to start to nose over, slow down, and eventually go into reverse. And so that's, that's just an absolutely classic, historically reproducible Formula 4 uh, loss of purchasing power one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely, uh, I think that's uh, certainly a theme that we've had frequently on this on this show. But the point is that you you really made a change in your life, and I want to get to the you know to the positive side. And you know, you talk about a richer life, a more a better relationships with your neighbors and your family, and higher quality of life with less stuff. And uh, that certainly is different because most of us sort of have been programmed to believe that we're happier with the more junk we have around us and we have so much junk in fact i'm looking in my office here and wondering you know i mean i can't i can't find things um but in any event i i want to talk to you more about about this book i mean this is the main reason i wanted to talk to you the crash course uh but i have to ask you about another book that you wrote i believe you wrote a book called the end of money is that right and and if so what what's that book about Oh, no, I didn't write The End of Money. I had a, oh. I, my blog was titled The End of Money for a while, and confusingly, somebody then wrote a book which was very close to the subject of the blog, and so the, there has been some confusion there. But I, that's oh, oh okay. Okay, so The End of Money, uh, but do you have a sense of, of monetary changes that are, that are about to take place? Well, my goodness, we're printing $85 billion a month, even with stocks at all-time highs and bonds at all-time highs, all-time highs. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that, that we are goosing you know, financial assets to even more expensive extremes 
uh, is just is really an astounding, astounding thing that, that honestly Bernanke needs to be hauled up and asked some very hard questions that he should not be allowed to wiggle out from. Because I think Bernanke is conducting not just the largest monetary experiment in history, Jay, but uh, the largest social experiment in history. And mm. if he goofs this, uh, there's a very strong chance that he creates a whole lot of, of um, social unrest, political anguish, hard times. And, and I, first of all, I think it's all completely avoidable. Uh, and so on that basis, it's possibly regrettable. We're taking these risks for such small returns. But that ultimately, we, you know, we as a nation, if we decided to uh, have a different story, a different narrative, a, a different vision that we were going to live into, we have plenty of resources, we have people who are willing to work hard. The problem is, is that that defense of the status quo, as you said, the policies today are probably just the same as the policies of the 30s, maybe more extreme. But in both cases, the policies were there to reinforce and perpetuate the status quo. Mm-hmm. We, want, we just want to keep doing things the way we've been doing them. And what my book is really is an articulation of is that, no, we can't. We're really going to have to ask ourselves three very important questions. Which things are we going to keep doing? So there's a lot to preserve in what we do. Which things are we going to stop doing? Because they just don't make sense. And Mm -hmm. what new things do we have to start doing? Mm -hmm. And it's in that third one I spend a lot of my time, because that's where the hope is, the opportunity. I do believe we can turn hard times into good times. But first, we have to get the context of the story right, having... The wrong story is just as harmful as, as, uh, as having no story at all. Well, if we're continuing to print more money, trying to keep the status quo in place, then obviously the, the trends that you're talking about, this, this exponential reliance on stuff and, and demands on the world's uh, resources and, and uh, echo structures uh, is, is going to be, at some time it's got to break down, I would think. Well, it does create a lot of difficulty, and, and the place we're going to see it first is in the financial system. We have extraordinarily bloated financial machinery at this point in time. I think in 2007, at the peak, financial profits were about 40% of the total stock mm-hmm. market. It's just, it was just way over the top. And that bloated machinery, of course, needs to keep having more and more credit, fuel, money, fuel pumped into it in order to stay inflated at that rate. The problem is, is that... You know, we had the warning shot across the bow in 2008. Instead of saying, oh, my gosh, that was, that was scary. Lehman went down. This almost took the whole system. We now have to dismantle these too-big-to-fail banks. Uh, we made them both too-big-to-fail and too-big-to-jail, and we've enshrined moral hazard in the process. And so I'm worried, personally, Jay, that a, the next financial accident will be very severe. It could result in things like capital controls and banking system shutdowns. Everything we've seen in Cyprus this past week Mm-hmm. Uh, small. That that is a story that I think has has potential parallels. Not a guarantee, but the risks are high enough that prudent adults ought to look at it. Say, what can I do about that? Well, how can I insulate myself? Is there anything I can do? These are all just perfect questions to be asking today. Yeah, you know, you're. Uh, I mentioned to you before we went on the air. There's another book that was written by a, a doctor, Richard Swenson. He's a medical doctor and futurist. Uh, the book is called Hurtling Towards Oblivion, and there were three points in, in that little booklet. It was a not a real big book. It was just, I don't know, a hundred pages or so. It was a relatively short uh, thesis, but he talked about uh, the profusion through progress, that is, we're witnessing an exponential growth in people, cars, miles traveled, more roads, more airplanes, more flights, more books, more and more of everything at a faster and faster 
uh, rate of growth. Uh, then he talked about the irreversibility of progress. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So whenever you have something that is really, you know, lots and lots of good things, new developments taking place, new inventions, but there's also things that are very problematic, like like nuclear weapons or, uh, you know, sort of um, diseases that are created uh, and and leashed out into the. Uh, into the public. Um, uh, so there's those kind of things. So it says exponential growth more and more faster and faster. The irreversibility of, of progress and things that are anti-progress. Uh, and then he talks about the threshold of lethality. And by that he means uh, that that even though 99% of everything that is new and is being developed is good, uh, you have 1% that's bad, or whatever that percentage is, and everything is growing exponential. And so he points out as a physician, just uh, as an example, that you know you, every part of your body can be working extremely well. You can be extremely healthy, but if you start to develop a little um, you know, a cancerous cell in one of your vital organs, pretty soon the whole system can be shut down. And his concern is that... Uh, as as the uh, you know as the population is growing exponentially and all these other things are growing exponentially, that at some point in time, uh, human existence may cease to exist uh, on the earth as we know it, uh, because you know entire economies and nations and biosystems and can be shut down. Now this is a really sort of a really bleak picture, and I mean the the good thing about your book is that you seem to think that that sort of cataclysmic end is avoidable uh, but but you share some of would you share some of his concerns as I've expressed them and it isn't fair because I don't think you've had a chance to read the book but any comments well as I as I heard it uh, I share this view which is that on our current trajectory there's a really hard rocky and potentially calamitous ending mm-hmm. and it doesn't really matter what lens you, you choose to look at that through I have opportunities to interact with world-class Ecologists looking at mm-hmm. species loss and just ecosystem destruction, or people who are water experts just mm-hmm. flat out saying, this is just math. Look at the number of people in India, how fast their aquifers are, are running down. They are going to, about 250 million people are at risk there just because they're going to run out of water. Um, or whether you're looking at uh, people who are looking at the oceans or people who actually work in the energy business, uh, everything, we, we've got enough warning signs now to say, Guess what? There's no new horizon to go over. There's no fresh continents. There's no, you know, unexploited landmass. You know, Africa maybe being the, the, the sole exception. There's probably some good resources there. But generally speaking, in the remaining portion of my adult lifetime, but guaranteed in my kids' lifetime, we are going to go past the peak of, meaning peak meaning the, the maximum rate at which you can extract stuff out of the ground, mm-hmm. natural gas, coal, oil, Fertilizers, most of them, except maybe phosphorus, but all the other ones. Uh, and, and as he was articulating in that book, the idea here is that it's not—it's uh, always the, the minimum thing that you have to mm-hmm. live off of, right? There's some limiting critical factor, and there's—and so this is the legacy we're going to be leaving. And so here's an example of this. Right now, there's abundant natural gas reserves in the U.S. because mm-hmm. we've learned how to exploit the shale. The, the 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 story that we're running by is well gosh let's just get out of the ground as fast as possible so mm-hmm. like, heck let's just liquefy it and we'll sell it overseas and that'll make mm-hmm. perfect economic sense but it doesn't make energy sense because you lose 25 percent of the work contained in that natural gas in the process of liquefying it that's a very energy intensive process mm-hmm. why would we waste 25 percent of the work that's like taking a hundred horses you have and wasting 25 of them 
so mm-hmm. that, you know, you, so you can sell the other 75 overseas. Instead, let's take 100 horsepower. Let's use all the energy contained within that to do what? And here's where we'd have to say, well, where do we want to be in 30 years? And what do we want our country to look like? And, and what do we want to preserve? And, and what new things do we need to build? That's the kind of conversation every good business has. It's called a strategy. You, you need to know two things. Where am I going? How am I going to get there, right? What's my vision? Mm-hmm. What are my resources? I don't have any sense right now that our country is doing anything other than just going down this path which says we need economic growth. And we'll get it. But I, tr- I would concur with, you know, I, I, I share the view that just pursuing economic growth at this point is going to steal from our prosperity and expose us to extraordinary risks that could be just just completely uh, shattering and damaging to our economy, our way of life, our standing in the world, our happiness, all kinds of things. Well, what you're talking about, though, requires some educational process, which is what you've been doing you've, uh, on, a, on a pretty impressive scale, I might add. You've really gotten out to a lot of people. Your message has resonated very well. Uh, to what extent do you think this is a message that people that make decisions are paying any attention to? I mean, you've had some pretty good audiences uh, already, but what, what's your sense? I mean, because this is not this is uh, not something that's just going to happen automatically. For example, I noticed in today's Financial Times talking about uh, American manufacturers are in fact uh, lobbying the president to try to keep this um, you know liquefaction of natural gas and exporting it overseas so that we can continue to have cheap energy here, so we can continue to to grow our manufacturing base, uh, but. I guess what I'm asking you is, do you get a sense that enough people are going to care about this issue and understand it, uh, and then what has to happen? We have to have some major policy issues. I mean, we don't even have an energy policy, which is probably the most important, one of the most important things you talk about in your book. But do you see the possibility of enough people embracing these concerns to make a difference? Well, absolutely. I don't know any other way to, to begin to tackle this, uh, Jay. This will probably be an effort that, that outlives me by several generations, mm-hmm. and, and so I'm just a, a small part in this. And when I look at history, though, I, what we're really talking about is there has to be a fundamental shift in the status quo. And mm-hmm. the status quo never willingly gives that up. So think about something that really challenged the status quo of this country, and I would defy you to think of an example that was not brought kicking and screaming from the outside in. You know, Washington did not lead the charge. In fact, they fought the environmental movement, labor rights, civil rights, women rights, anything you care to think about, um, whether you agree with with these things or not is immaterial. Mm -hmm. The the point is that we, the people, are going to have to create uh, the the, uh, critical mass that Washington will then follow. And nothing, and by the way, it's worse than it used to be because Washington is now really beholden to corporate interests and that whole power structure is, is completely at odds with um, what works for average people, regular people, you know, the, the, the gross mass of citizens out there, of which I'm one, I, I don't think we're really well served. So that's, that's sort of the downer on this story. The upper on this story is that I've had lots and lots of opportunities to work with extremely wealthy families, with corporations, with hedge fund managers, with people who are extremely well-connected, have a lot of ability to uh, have a lot of influence, and they see this. They're worried. They understand that we're... You know, this is a, a really critical moment in history, and we nobody quite knows what to do yet. And my belief is that, look, if we really want our country to be resilient and engaged and, and well-educated and all of that, well, that has to begin with me. 
Uh, I can't mm-hmm. expect my community to be resilient if I'm not personally resilient in my household. So I really talk about, and, and my whole website is, is dedicated to the idea of, of, of helping people understand what the challenges are, see where the risks are, see where the opportunities are, because ultimately this is not about being prepared. This is not about surviving. We're only interested in promoting the idea of thriving and that uh, I have no interest in muddling through this this next piece of history. Um, My homestead is absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. Uh, I have a very resilient place with, with, you know, I've got solar and extra water and gardens, and and it's just gorgeous. It's like living Mm -hmm. in a park. And Mm -hmm. that's how that that just makes sense to me. And, oh, by the way, these are fantastic investments that I can show you on a spreadsheet that make perfect sense. And, uh, you know, so it's really... I think we can live very high-quality lives. We can bring more depth, more resilience, more local and community engagement, the things that I'm sure my grandfather would understand and respect uh, that, that, are, that actually bring a lot of meaning to our lives. And it's the right thing to do anyway because these are the things we're going to have to do whether we choose to or not. And so my uh, position is, well, guess what? Um, I'd rather make whatever changes need to be made on my own terms with abundant resources and giving myself the luxury of time, because these things take time. Yeah, indeed. Well, uh, how long ago you was it that you quit the, the corporate world and went on your own here? Was 10 years ago or so? Well, it was July of 2005 was my last day okay. at work. Okay, well, you know, you explain so many things. On Chapter 27, what should I do is an issue, and we're, we only got, my engineer tells me, only a minute left, so we'll have to have you back sometime if you're willing to come back. What should I do, Chapter 27, Chapter 28, the opportunities? Uh, Chris, we have to go, so tell our listeners where they can go to, to, to buy this book and to find out about what you have to offer here, to dig into detail what you're telling us in, in general today. Well, the website has, has got a new name now, so I want people to remember the name Peak Prosperity. Peakprosperity.com okay. is the website. The book is there. It's also available in video form, uh, in uh, something called the Crash Course in Video Form. We have a lot of resources there, including a whole section on how to live more resiliently and then a whole section for people who are interested in the financial and economic aspects of this. So there's uh, two, it's just an absolutely packed site with a lot of information and, best of all, a really deep and vibrant community of other people who are thinking, talking, and conversing in a very civil way about all of these things. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I do hope we'll come back sometime in the near future to talk to us some more in more detail, but thank you very much for being with us. Folks, don't go away. We've got to go to a commercial break. When we come back, we're going to be with Eric Coffin, first time with us, really anxious to hear what Eric has to say about the mining industry and uh, where he thinks you should put your money uh, in this current environment. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Eric Coffin. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. 